Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Severe weather comes in many forms and tornadoes are among the deadliest on a yearly basis. When severe weather strikes, many people feel as the safest place to be is in their homes. But is that the case for all types of homes? Our next guest has studied the vulnerability of humans that live in mobile and manufactured homes during severe weather events. Dr. Steven Strader, an assistant professor at Villanova University, is here today to discuss these findings and ways that we can improve safety through tornadic events. Steven, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, thanks for for having me. I uh, look forward to a good discussion, and um, we're getting to that time of year where we're we're starting to move into being severe weather aware and um, start discussing the things and what's coming up the next couple of months. Well, that, that's exactly right, and that's why uh, when we were putting together our slate of shows for the early spring, I said we've got to talk to Stephen Strader. I mean, I just he's someone that I've wanted to talk to for some time. Let me give a little bit of your background. Uh, you have a bachelor of science in uh, from Indiana University, I believe that's in geography is that correct or is that not correct, correct? yeah it's in yeah. geography but it's one of those programs that houses meteorology as well yeah, well so. very very much like Common. my program at the university of georgia so that's right. why i wanted to, to highlight yeah. that there are, there's a lot of good research and scholarship going on at the intersection of meteorology and geography uh, my program at the university of georgia is one that program at indiana is as as well the, you have a master of science and a phd from northern illinois university uh, I'm I, I'm interested to see if you work with some of the colleagues that I know there. I, I, I'm suspecting that you did. And as I mentioned in the intro, you are currently uh, an assistant professor at Villanova University. So usually I ask my guests right out of the gate, how did you become a weather geek? So I'll ask you how you become a weather geek, a geography geek or whatever you consider yourself. I'm, I'm, I, you can't see this, but uh, Stephen has a really nice uh, model of a Saturn V rocket sitting behind him as well, which caught my eye as a former NASA scientist as well. So tell us how you just got into this particular field. What was an experience, something later in life, so forth? Yeah. So uh, I was always uh, a science kid. I I grew up um, loving science. For the longest time, I thought I was going to be an acoustical engineer where I would study the intersection of of acoustics and and music and and science itself. But I I grew up with this fascination of of severe weather. Um, Eventually, as a little kid, uh, that fear of storms turned into fascination and wanting to learn more about them. Um, We have I grew up in Evansville, Indiana, um, and we have a very good TV meteorologist there who's still going uh, in Wayne Hart. He he would do very good live coverage, and I learned a lot from him just watching it as a kid. Well, fast forward to my senior year of high school, and the in November, I believe, 5th, uh, 2005, there was uh, an EF3 that hit at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night in Evansville, Indiana. It hit a mobile home or manufactured home park that killed 23 people, um, and that was about a mile from my house. And we had a, a very close family friend who um, was very seriously injured and her husband was killed. They um, actually had sold their permanent home to save money and move into this manufactured home where they could 
been afforded to travel the world and this was just their off season and they happened to be there. And, um, it was, it was devastating to, to our, our family friends. And I, I realized very quickly that that's something that I wanted to do. And I continued to work for that over undergraduate and graduate careers. And, um, now here I am full circle conducting research on tornado tornadoes and manufactured housing. So it feels very complete. And, and I feel like some sense of purpose in that, in that regard. Yeah. And I, I, if you don't follow, we'll get his Twitter account later. But Steven's one of my favorite people to follow in social media. Uh, he puts out some really interesting information, uh, particularly after storms, uh, looking at sort of distributions of people impacted by tornadic and severe storms, uh, manufacturing mobile home housing, just some really uh, elegant graphics. And I can clearly see his background in geographic information yeah. systems and GIS and various other things that we very much preach our own students at the University of Georgia. Uh, I want to get into a discussion of tornado vulnerability. I think on this podcast, we talk a lot about the the physics and sort of meteorology of severe storms, supercells and rotation and updrafts and so forth. But there is another world that's emerging. And I think your group and folks at Northern Illinois are really leading the charge in understanding sort of vulnerability, exposure, sensitivity and so forth. So give our listeners, first of all, a basic one on one on sort of what your sort of definition of vulnerability is, and then more specifically tornado vulnerability and how you approach your research. Yeah. So when we think of disasters occurring, what we always tend to focus on is the the event itself, the, the actual phenomena, whether it's a tornado or a hurricane or whatever it might be. And we think about how strong the tornado was or how large it was, wide, intense, all those things. But when we really boil disasters down to the core, it really is a societal element. If that same tornado does not go through the middle of a, if it goes through a middle of a, of a farm or a field and it doesn't hit anything, we may not even hear about it on the, on the news. But now that that same tornado is going across a, a suburban landscape or an urban region, we then end up in this realm of disaster. And the, the vulnerability is going to be those characteristics of the underlying population whether it's a large number of people, which we call the exposure, or what is making up those individuals, or what, what are those individuals made up of? Are, are they living in poverty? Are they single family uh, head of household with multiple children? Do they live in compromised physical structures? It's those societal and, and physical elements that don't allow people to withstand the tornado. Like I like to think of this as if you lived in a concrete bunker, you would not be a vulnerable person to a tornado because you would likely be surviving the, the most intense winds. But if you live in a manufactured home, complete different story when it comes to that same event. So those vulnerability elements are vastly critical in determining not only the potential for where we can make improvements going forward and survivability, but also targeting those individuals who are likely to be most negatively affected by those uh, by hazard atmospheric hazard events. Yeah, really. I'm talking with Dr. Steven Strader from Villanova University. Um, give us an overview of just sort of the key sort of findings. If I were standing in an elevator with you and a senator, and they're like, uh, Dr. Strader, what, what have you mostly found in your research over the years? What are the bullet points that really, and I don't, I don't like these that were, what are the highlights of uh, that you like to sort of convey on what you found over the years in your research? 
Yeah. So all this starts back with the work that Dr. Walker, Ashley and I did in, in 2014, um, where we started looking at this idea uh, and, and he began that work before I knew him. But we sort of have taken it into the next realm over the last decade is this concept of the expanding bullseye effect. It's 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 an art. It's a theory and, and it's pretty well grounded in truth. I mean, we see this happening everywhere is that as our urban cities begin to sprawl outward into suburban and exurban development, we're creating more targets, more things for tornadoes and hurricanes and flooding and just about any geophysical hazard all the way up to drought and wildfire. We're creating more targets for those events to hit. And that's a societal issue. That means that the same tornado that was going through the middle of a cornfield in 1940 is now going through the heart of a brand new subdivision just south of Oklahoma City. So that's one finding. The other thing that we've really focused in on over the last, um, well, the second thing we focused on is, is how we have this changing disaster landscape. We have an underlying changing society, but at the same time, works uh, work from folks like uh, Dr. Victor Gensini and Dr. Harold Brooks and, and Dr. Michael Tippett. What is happening with our climate world and in terms of severe weather? If you think about our understanding and ability to detect climate change into hazardous convective weather like hail, tornadoes, and hurricane, it's all the way at the bottom. We're just now beginning to make progress and try to understand what's going on with climate change. But we have two elements that are changing. So what does a future tornado disaster landscape look like? And then last but not least, as you mentioned, one thing that we've really honed in on in the Southeast uh, US is thinking about improving our understanding of manufactured housing residents and the struggles that they face when tornado threats arise. It's the most fat fatal prone region of the, of the United States in terms of tornadoes. And that's the most fat fatality prone population that we see in that region. Yeah, I'm talking with Dr. Steven Strader. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another area that I want to get into is actually an area that really comes down the, the lane a little bit of my wife, who uh, has a master's degree in urban and regional planning and used to work with HUD quite a bit. I know in the 70s, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, they increased the standards for building codes on things like mobile homes and manufactured homes. Is it enough? From your research, do you believe we need to uh, take another look at building codes and uh, or what are the solutions at, at bay, given what you found in your research? Yeah, that's a great question. It's incredibly important and uh, more important than I ever thought it was five years ago. Now that myself and um, a collaborator, Dr. David Roosh, who's at Auburn University, he's a structural wind engineer. We've really focused over the last three years on understanding how these manufactured homes are failing. In other words, when a tornado is, is hitting them, where's that point of failure in the structure? And one thing that we've learned is, yes, the superstructure, the, the mobile home, the manufactured home box itself has improved. The, it's, it's stronger than ever before. The codes are, are strong. They're enforced pretty well, but that's not the point where they're failing. Where they're failing is in the anchoring to the ground, which actually is not a blame game that we're trying to make with the manufactured housing industry. It's actually a part of the site installer. You know, you, you buy your manufactured home at a dealer and then you have to get an installer to place it, plot it, and then anchor it to the ground. Where we're seeing a, a sort of a game of telephone go on among these individuals is that the anchoring standards aren't quite up to snuff. They're not quite there. And one of the things that we've recommended is, is in 1992, post-Hurricane Andrew, HUD came out and FEMA came out and said, there's these different wind zones that you have to anchor your mobile home to the ground with. And these manufactured homes um, have to meet these certain requirements of wind loads. And the best codes are in Florida. 
and the best manufactured homes are in Florida. But as soon as you get away from the coast, 100, 200 miles away from the coast, there's virtually no regulations to anchoring your manufactured home. Well, if you look at where tornadoes occur, that's the place where we're seeing the fatalities is people that should literally be anchoring their homes as if they lived in a hurricane prone region. Because what happens, the tornado comes along, it actually picks up the entire structure and then throws it. And then you're inside of it. So it's not so much the box. So the manufactured housing industry is doing their job. It's somewhere going from the purchase to the installation that we love to make increases or at least changes to improve survivability. And those changes are relatively cheap compared to the housing itself. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Stephen Strader from Villanova University about tornado vulnerability. And I mean, he, he, in my opinion, he's really the, the, the go to person on this topic. Now, if I want to know something, that's who I would go to on it. And I think um, stakeholders, decision makers and policymakers that may be listening to this uh, podcast uh, definitely want to make you aware of him as well. I, I think you alluded to this earlier that the South is one of the more vulnerable regions, but are, from a manufactured home uh, mobile home perspective, uh, what are the most vulnerable reason, uh, regions and, and why are they most vulnerable? Yeah, I, I point to uh, really sort of Georgia, Miss, or sorry, sorry, uh, Mississippi and Alabama as being sort of the prone fatality prone region, the, the region that's experiencing the greatest likelihood of fatalities. I think of this as being centered on Memphis, Tennessee, and then sort of spreading outward about 500 miles in a radius. The reason we see that those individuals in those regions are prone to fatalities is one, they have a relatively high risk. A lot of people think that tornadoes only occur in the central plains, but some of the most devastating look, take the Kentucky event that occurred not too long ago. You had one of the longest track tornadoes in history. We thought for a second it may have rivaled the tri-state tornado that occurred in the, the southeast. It occurred in the southern half of the Midwest or the northern half of the southeast, not in the central plains. So we have those events in that region. But unfortunately, what we also have is high poverty. We have high um, racial inequality, which plays a drastic role in how funds are allocated and outreach is made. We also have a lot of nocturnal tornadoes. We, you know, we're, we're actually put, we have a paper right now in review that's revisiting nocturnal tornado climatology and, and how that might be affecting these manufactured home residents and vulnerable populations. It's really a combination of many factors that are stacking the odds against these individuals in terms of survivability when an event occurs. It's not one thing here or there, but if I can say that, you know, the most vulnerable population are those rural, isolated, manufactured home residents that aren't near an urban center where they have a shelter they can get to. Um, and typically those are elderly individuals, one vehicle, maybe no vehicles and living paycheck to paycheck. 
Now, I was actually going to ask you about that because I know that there are incidents where people are dying in their their homes, um, manufactured homes. And I, I was curious about what's driving uh, perhaps situations where people don't leave those homes and go to a shelters. But in many cases, you're saying it's because they're in very I, and I, I grew up in the South. And so yeah. I live in the South now. So I, I know that there are large stretches of of rural population, people living in places that are far from even a small urban area or a town even. So uh, is that the main factor behind people not leaving and going to shelters or are there other things at play too? I think it's it's, it's one of the main factors, yes. Um, to put it in perspective, anywhere else in the country, except for the Southeast, if you see a manufactured home, it's more than likely, 90% likely to be in a manufactured home park. Zoning stipulates that. You see that in the Midwest, Manufactured homes are in manufactured home parks. That's a great thing in terms of uh, easy uh, as a fix for tornado safety because you can place a public shelter in that mobile home community and actually people will use it because it's right next to them. But once we get to the southeast, we lose that. In fact, research that we did showed that over 80% of manufactured homes in Alabama were actually not in manufactured home parks, but actually isolated out in exurban and rural regions. And what you see is this mixed land use where you'll have permanent home, two car garage next to a manufactured home, next to a farm, next to another manufactured home, next to another uh, permanent, you know, 3000 square foot home. It, it's such a mixed land use that when we say, oh, let's build public shelters, where do we put them? Because what we find is that most manufactured home residents one, they're told by FEMA and National Weather Service and NOAA they need to get out of their homes during tornadoes. But the average warning time or warning lead time is about 13 minutes across the United States. But when we did the calculations and we ran through and did some geospatial analyses, most of these residents in Alabama and manufactured homes live more than 20 minutes away from the closest shelter. So when the warning hits, it's too late and their fight or flight mechanism kicks in and they go, hey, we're going to fight because we can't make it to the shelter. And it's not necessarily a bad decision because we don't want them, one, driving in the dark where they don't know where the tornado is coming from. The tornado is probably moving 60 miles per hour or more because it's in the southeast. There's trees and they don't may not even know their cardinal directions. People's geographic literacy is, is not as great as, say, you and I who are geographers. So um, there's a lot of factors that I think play a role. But that's one large one that we found. And even when you compare it to like someplace like Kansas, if you go to Kansas, yeah, they have a lot of manufactured homes, but 90, you know, I think I calculate, let me have the numbers here. It's uh, about 70% of manufactured homes in Kansas are actually in manufactured home parks. That's, that's an easy fix, but 80% of manufactured homes in Alabama are not in mobile home parks. So that right there just shows you the difference in land use and how it plays a role in these disasters. You know, talking with Dr. Stephen Strader and really insightful discussion here about the intersection of severe weather and vulnerability. And by the way, make sure to catch our series of podcasts over the next several weeks uh, where we're talking to folks uh, related to the new perils experiment that will be happening in this very region that uh, Dr. Strader is talking about looking at. QLCS, these sort of quasi-linear storms that often spin up tornadoes at nighttime and uh, very much what we're talking about today. So um, we we have an entire series of of, of, uh, podcast episodes on tornadic storm severe weather in the coming weeks. So um, make sure you catch those in addition to this episode with Dr. Strader. One one question that I had, Stephen, and I don't know if you've dabbled in this, 
Um, is there weather vulnerability to mobile and manufactured homes that are not just related to tornadoes? In other words, heat or other aspects of weather. And uh, this is just a question of curiosity that I've have, had as I've followed your research over the years. That's a fantastic question. And it's 100 percent true. Um, we see it with flooding, maybe even more than hurt than tornadoes. One of the things that, you know, I going back to the first story I told, which is how I be sort of went down this path. The manufactured home community, the, the manufactured home park that was hit by that Evansville, Indiana tornado in 2005 was built on the other side of the Ohio River floodplain. In other words, if you go look at Evansville, Indiana, the bypass, which is I-69, goes all the way around the city. That actually is built up on top of the levee. This manufactured home park was built just on the other side of it, about a mile from the Kentucky River in what is actually used as farmland because it's so fertile and flat where the Ohio River regularly floods. So the concern with that manufactured home park to begin with was ironically flooding, but it got hit by a tornado. Some of this sort of like, you know, a strange phenomena going on. But at the same time, it's still prone to flooding because it's still there and people have rebuilt. We, we've seen that time and time again. I think of places like St. Charles, um, where, where we have the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi River coming together. We have a lot of manufactured housing communities in that region that, well, why do they get put into those plots of land? Because they're prone to flooding and it's cheaper to have those plots of land. And, and if you're a manufactured home owner, unfortunately, we've seen this societal element where they're there to make profits. And there's actually TV shows that talk about people going and how to invest in manufactured home parks. And it's a bit cruel at times and they take advantage of individuals. So we see a lot of system or you know, some systemic issues going on in these manufactured homes that are beyond the weather sphere. They're actually societal vulnerability elements to things like access to healthcare and all kinds of individual things. So when we think about hazards, it's just exacerbating their vulnerabilities as individuals. So flooding, hurricanes, we've seen that over time as well. So when we come back, I'm gonna ask Dr. Strader the big question. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and talking with Stephen Strader. I'm going to ask him a big question here in a moment. Before, before we do that, I, want to, I do want to sort of, um, I guess, ask him about that rocket in the back in the backdrop yeah. there. Any special significance of this model of the Saturn V? Well, so I have... Um... I grew up again thinking I was going to be an engineer, um, loving Legos and tech and connects and all kinds of um, gadgetry. I, I love working with my hands. I still do. My dad was an auto mechanic for years and we we built stuff together and all kinds of stuff. And as I've gotten older and I sort of look for hobbies, one of the things that I, I'm really into as, as a passion is um, I like I like astronomy. I like thinking about space. I really love space travel. If I could go back and do it all over again, maybe I'd push really hard to work for NASA and be an astronaut or something like that and work. I think a different path I could have taken, um, but I still enjoy 
reading a lot about, you know, a lot of books I read are, are nonfiction, um, space-based science books. And, and uh, my wife every once in a while will say, hey, you're stressed, you know, and she'll go buy me a Lego set or something. And it's one of those aspects that you know as well uh dr shepherd that you get into this teaching and grading and, and all this stuff as a researcher and sometimes you want to decompress and one of the best ways to decompress on a cold winter day is to sit there and put together a lego set it seems silly but um you know there's it, it's always a good time and and for some reason i tend to latch on to the real things space and architecture um so it's more of a hobby than anything yeah i you know and i completely agree with that i you know over the covid pandemic i got into vegetable gardening, something I'd never done ever, yep. but, you know, I actually got into it and kind of enjoy it now. So that's kind of one of the things that I do to kind of sort of relax and yep. so forth. So completely understand that. The question I wanted to ask you is, you know, I can envision this happening, by the way, uh, you've been called to Congress to testify before a House committee or a Senate committee on this topic. What are the key recommendations that you tell them that needs to happen right now? Yeah, I think um, we're seeing a lot of it ongoing in the insurance industry. I look at folks like um, Ian uh, Giamanco, um, who is at IBHS, the Insurance Institute for Buildings um, and Homes. It's, it's an interesting thing that we're seeing is what we're seeing is these micro protections that we can do to all homes to improve the structural quality quality and, and survivability of, of individuals. Something as simple as reinforcing a garage door or doing um, fire landscaping. So you basically remove the shrub shrubs and everything that can catch fire on your plot of land and the fire will jump over you and save your home. I think that pushing for that would be critical. But what I'd really like to see reform on is investment from a federal level to actually our most vulnerable individuals, particularly our manufactured home residents in the Southeast. We have developed really strong relationships with individuals in Alabama and Mississippi and even Georgia, thinking about the Alabama um, Emergency Managers Association, the state emergency manager and all those individuals. They've asked us, what can we do? And it always becomes this issue of funding. We talked to a number of county emergency managers in southern Alabama. Think of these as the counties that that are so far back in time that a lot of the residents don't even have cell phone coverage. They don't even have electricity. And we asked them, what do you, would, if we gave you money for a manufactured home uh, storm shelter, for a storm shelter, would you be able to use it for that? And they said, we can't afford the other, the other half of the, of the shelter. And if we did have the money, we'd use it to build, improve our roads. We'd use it to fix this bridge. So what we see is this lack of funding in some of these more rural counties that these individuals know that they're struggling. And we, you know, I think the one thing I would emphasize, and we're at this point, in, in terms of tornado disasters with manufactured home residents, where we see this paradox. We asked them in research, myself and Dr. Kevin Ash um, and Dr. Mike Ignato, we asked them, he said, why don't you leave your home when there's a, when there's a tornado coming? And what they said is, or, or how, why, why are you vulnerable is what we asked them. And they said, we know that we can, we're vulnerable. We know that we shouldn't be here, but we lack the ability to actually flee. Those that have the ability to flee their home, 
don't need to. So it's this paradox of knowing that you're vulnerable, but you can't do anything about it. And one of the best ways we can fix that is to allocate more funding to individual storm shelters, to retrofitting of structures, as well as better enforcement of our building codes. We are terrible at enforcing building codes. We can make them up and we can design new laws, but until we are having people regularly inspecting the anchoring points of these manufactured homes, we're going to keep seeing these fatalities occur over and over again in the Southeast. And I get tired of seeing it, frankly. I'm, I'm tired of waking up and seeing a tornado and seeing, oh, three people dead in a manufactured home. It's, it's so predictable and I hate it with a passion and it's something that I'm, I'm working hard to solve. So I'd love that opportunity if it came along. I'd be yeah, more well, I happy. Think it- I, I think it should. And I hope yeah. I hope that you will get that opportunity. Uh, you know, and this is an argument I've been making recently in, in the Gulf region as it relates to hurricanes. People often criticize people in New Orleans and places. Why don't they leave? Why don't they get out? And, and there are some people that are just stubborn and won't leave. But there are some people that don't have the economic means that I have. I can pick up my family and go inland for five days in a hotel or and I have a car to do that. Uh, there are people in those communities that don't have any of that. They lack the adaptive capacity to do that. So I, I've also argued we need to invest, make available funds for our hardened structures where they are uh, uh, on a large scale, even for hurricanes. So it's it's uh, consistent with what you're you're saying here. And I, I, I could I agree. And so if there's anyone out there uh, thinking about a hearing, I know we have some staffers that listen to this podcast. Um, Dr. Strader definitely is a good person to talk to. I, I, I know I've done that type of thing before, and it's, it's a valuable service. What, what other research do you have ongoing these days, Stephen? Yeah, so we're um, we're in the process of um, we have a NOAA grant that's looking at more tornado vulnerability. But what we're really interested in is um, thinking about how to understand convective modes as they relate to vulnerability. In other words, we do know that tornadoes, you know, are bad for mobile homes or bad for vulnerable populations. But what we want to learn more about is the types of storms that are producing those tornadoes in these vulnerable in these high vulnerability locations. Um, whether it's nocturnal, daytime, QLCS, supercell, we're really trying to dig down and connecting the meteorology back to this vulnerability. The other side that we're working on is trying to better understand if our watch and warning system is in need of an update for some of these more vulnerable populations. What what I'm really focused on um, over the next few years is thinking about, is it time for an intermediate product, a call to action product that comes out after the watch, but before the warning that says, hey, now's the time to leave your manufactured home. Because normally right now, what we tell people is, hey, you have to leave during the watch issuance, but that might be a few hours in advance of the actual event. And it's hard to get people to leave. But if they wait to the warning, it's too late. So something in between there to say, hey, now's the time to move to your shelter. And one of the things that we borrowed this from is TV meteorologists. We see them calling out in real time. You need to get to your shelter. This, you know, they're better at communicating that to the public. So we're working on that. There's some other things going on with thinking about climate change and some of our hazardous production that a lot of us are working on and um, just pushing that needle a little bit further into this interdisciplinary realm of engineers social scientists, emergency managers, and physical scientists like myself, who are are sort of living in this in-between land, which I love. So that's where we're headed. Yeah, really exciting stuff. Where can people follow you on Twitter, either you individually or your research group? 
Yeah. So you can just follow it's Stephen M. Strader, um, just my middle initial in there um, for Michael. Um, so Stephen M. Strader on Twitter is probably, I typically post um, after big events, I'll post summaries of the event and show sort of what if scenarios, like with the Kentucky event, I will say, Hey, what if this tornado would have been 20 miles North? It would have taken out Louisville. What if it was 10 miles South? It would have taken out all, you know, I sort of thinking about what if scenarios to highlight some of our vulnerabilities. Um, so that's the best way to get to me, or you can go to my website, um, which is Stephen administrator.org and or just google search steven strader villanova i'll show up and you can reach out to me and by the way that's steven with a ph i believe as well correct yeah steven with a ph yep yeah this is really amazing before we get out of here i've got to do our geek of the week we like to highlight a scientist superstar a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast this episode's geek of the week is casey harbour casey has been a storm chaser since the xenia ohio tornado in 1974 a former firefighter and EMS responder, Casey counts the Memorial Day 2019 tornadoes as one of her most memorable weather events. In all, 21 tornadoes touched down in Ohio that holiday weekend. Casey has been an advanced spotter for over 21 years. Thank you for your service, Casey, and has no plans to stop anytime soon. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Uh, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And again, you've been a sort of a high value guest for me. I've just wanted to talk to you on the podcast for a while because I knew it'd be a great, great discussion. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. I appreciate it, Dr. Shepard. Um, please always, um, you know, reach out if you ever have questions. I'm always interested in people's perspectives. I really appreciate um, individual stories and things that help me learn. And I think that's what we're all here for is to learn and, and help make the world. You know, it's cliche, but try to improve the world one, one step at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you all as listeners have learned something from Dr. Strader today. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.